Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you all. It's, um, it's a real joy to, uh, to be able to bring God's Word to you every morning or every Sunday morning. I, don't, uh, I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. I love and it's been a real joy to walk through as a Nehemiah. I don't know, for many of you, it's probably an unfamiliar uh, text of Scripture, a part of Scripture. But uh, I hope it's been helpful, uh, especially in this election season. There's so much, of, there's so much interaction between the church and the state in these, these, these verses, uh, in these chapters. Uh, kids, I don't know if you, when you were a kid, if you ever thought about what you would like to do when you grow up. Um, I had all kinds of ideas as a kid. At first, I was going to be a fighter pilot. Those were the days when, uh, if you guys remember the movie, Top Gun came out. And everyone wanted to be like a fighter pilot. And I remember my, I lived in my, the same room as my brother. We had a, I, I had the lower bunk of our bunk bed, and we had uh, posters of, of military aircraft just literally covering our walls. You couldn't see the paint of our, our walls because uh, we had so many various posters of all kinds of aircraft. And so I thought maybe I would be a, um, maybe I would be a, uh, you know, a, a pilot, a fighter pilot or something. And then I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'll be something else. Like I used to play with G.I. Joe figures a lot. And I loved the military. Maybe I was going to be like a special forces commander, you know, and go into enemy territory and, you know, do all kinds of, you know, all kinds of damage and things like that. So when I, then as I got older, I thought, no, I mean, that, that doesn't, they don't quite make enough money. You know, so I thought, I'm going to be a doctor, because doctor, it's a good life. You know, you be a doctor, you help people, but you get paid really well, too. And there was, there was one, for all the different, different jobs I thought about doing, there was one particular job that I never wanted to do. Can you guess what it was? <laughs> Why on earth would you work six days a week? And most ministers I know, they work five, at least five, but more, more, more like six days a week. And, and not only that, like I, the idea of getting up, doing these sort of, when I would have to get up in class, you know kids, those assignments where you have to get up over the class and present something, that's awful. I hated that sort of thing. I hated those times you have to get up and do some sort of oral presentation. It had to be this long, it was like four minutes long. Like the longest four minutes of your life, right? And you're just sweating, it's just awful. I, mean, I remember waking up the morning up thinking, now you, you'd have those shoebox presentations, you know, like, what are those called? You know, you have a, a shoebox and you make this little scene and you like look into it. I just, I just, all that stuff, I just hated that kind of thing. I thought, who would ever want to have to get up and speak in front of people? So it was, it was the, it was the how, you know, six, working six days a week and then you're, you're doing all this public speaking and then, of course, you don't make that much money. I mean, you're a doctor or a lawyer. I mean, there's, just, there's, there's easier ways to make money. And then on top of that, you had to be someone who, like, followed the rules even more. I mean, now, what's up with that? I mean, like, it's just, let's just do the minimum requirement and, and, you know, just sort of get into heaven, right? You don't have to, like, overdo, overdo the whole thing. Of course, here I am and today as a minister. Of course, God always has the last, last laugh. But I, one of the things I did see growing up is that I saw my parents. I saw them as laypersons uh, give their lives uh, as lay people to the local church. They had a heart for God's people that, whether I care to admit it or not, really left an impression. It was amazing to me that my parents, especially, you know, my dad was an electrical engineer uh, for many years for ExxonMobil, um, you know, middle class, upper, I would say upper middle class, and the way that they would use their time 
whatever resources they had, whatever time they had, whatever relationships they developed, it was always for this local group of people who frankly weren't that impressive. They were lowly, it was small, it was a small, small the metro growing up was pretty small. There was nothing really glorious about it. And there were no real kids my there weren't kids my age that at that time. It just wasn't it just didn't look that just didn't look worth investing. I don't know if you ever feel that way. You look at a church and you just sort of like shake your head, you think, really? Is this it? These are God's people. I mean, and I, I don't know if you do this, but I'll be driving around St. Louis at times and I'll I'll look at various buildings, I'll look at various or I'll be watching TV or something, I'll be online and I'll look at the amount of money that is put into things. Like, for example, I was watching, uh, happened to be watching an uh, NBA game or some sort of athletic. And I thought, man, think of the money that goes into all, all of that stuff. And how much money does it take for the NBA to, to do its thing? And I think, wow, that's just incredible that all that money could be, could be, um, could be uh, channeled into a given resource to create something like that. I think, man, just my local church, I mean, what, what, it's just tiny, all these few resources. It just seems inconsequential. But my parents' devotion to the local church, to people who were forgotten by everyone else, my parents' devotion to simply welcoming people into their home, listening to them, loving them, praying for them, shaping their lives. It's an amazing thing. And this morning, I want, you to, I want us to talk about what it means to have a heart for God's people. Because we see this in the person of Nehemiah. We see this, and it's, very, it's a very simple, it's two chapters are wonderfully simple. But don't let their simplicity, um, don't, let the, don't let that sort of uh, keep you from seeing just how profound, the, the, the profundity here of what we're about to see. So we've been going through this trek. We realize that we're in a time of the story of God's people where they have been removed from Israel. They were removed from Israel for their generations and generations of disobedience. Nehemiah, as we're going to see, lives in a time when God's people, there's just no avoiding the fact that God's people have failed. And there's this overwhelming sense of, is this futile? I mean, generations of disobedience, generations of unfaithfulness. And it just seems like it's impossible that God's people can never actually be God's people. The sense of futility, the sense of this is just not worth it, the sense of fruitlessness. And yet the small band of people have come back from exile. They've come back from Babylon. And now they've returned, they've rebuilt the altar, they've laid the foundation. Years later, the actual temple itself, much more humble than the previous one, has been rebuilt and time has gone by. We saw that as we saw that in the book of Ezra. Now that we're entering to the book of Nehemiah, we see that not many years have passed since Ezra returned. Somewhere a decade or so, somewhere ten years later, so to speak, the curtain opens in Nehemiah chapter one, and we see Nehemiah, and he's he himself is still um, in uh, he's still in uh, in uh, the land of general area of Babylon, and as when we'll read this, and the first thing I want you to see this morning is that. Nehemiah has a heart for God's people, and that heart for God's people manifests, it shows itself first in his priorities. It shows itself first in his priorities. That is to say, Nehemiah prioritizes God's people. We see it in the first four verses. And I'm just going to read through this text as we go along. The first of uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, 
In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Henani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And then Nehemiah writes, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And Nehemiah does two things, two things here in these verses that reveal his priorities. First, it is his heart for the Lord, the priest, his priorities, his sense of heart for God's people. First, he asks, he simply asks about the welfare of God's people. He asks them, verse 2, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the, the exile and also about Jerusalem. He asks. Now, that may sound so obvious, but it's actually a very profound thing. As Christians, we are to be asking, inquiring, when we have a heart for God's people, we're asking about how things are going in our church, how things are going in the church beyond us, in our local ministries, or perhaps in missions overseas. We're asking, we're inquiring, but most intimately, right here in this community, in this family, we're asking about each other. Especially in this time of pandemic, of struggle, of polarization. Are we asking about each other? Hey, how are you doing? What's going on? How is work for you right now? What's it like? Are you lonely? We're asking. We're simply, what, what, how wonderful it is, isn't it? When you get a phone call from someone, or when you get a text, and someone just asks, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? There's, there's concern. His heart for God's people is simply found in what kind of questions he's asking. Are we asking about who's going to win the election? Are we asking about when this pandemic is going to be over? Are we, what are we asking about? What are we inquiring about? What are the things that are on our minds? For Nehemiah, he's talking to, he's thinking about not the, the, the all that's on CNN.com, all that's on Fox News. He's not focused primarily on those things. He's asking about the welfare of God's people. Second, we, we see his heart for God's people in terms of his priorities. We see how once he asks about them, he second, he aches over the woes of God's people. So again, first he asks, he asks about the welfare of God's people, but then he aches over the woes that God's people are, are, are experiencing. Verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted. As a Christian, again, what, what are we asking about? What are we aching for? What is it that breaks our hearts? And I know it's so wonderful. Sometimes I, as I, one of the most wonderful things I love to do as a minister is I get to, I get to know some of you and I, realize, and I begin to ask, like, what, are you, what are you concerned about? Like, what's on your heart? What are the things that you're burdened about? And so often, so often, I get the most wonderful answers. It's I'm, I'm concerned about the elderly. Really? That's, I mean, it's amazing. So, I mean, so often that God places something on your heart. I'm concerned about little ones. I'm concerned about they're going to be loved and be cared for. I'm concerned about the poor. I'm concerned about those who are struggling with, with chronic illness. It's like, wow, I haven't, I haven't thought about any of those recently. Right? I'm just thinking about myself. But, but so many of you have burdens. Your heart aches 
And I'm gonna, I'm gonna encourage you to, to, to see that heart breaking as a gift from the Lord, to ask yourself, how is my heart breaking? For, for whom is my heart breaking? That reveals the heart for God's people. Perhaps the most moving thing about Jesus, if you've read the Gospels, one of the moving things about Jesus is his compassion for the people of God, his heart for the people of God. We read in Matthew chapter 9, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, now remember, these crowds are, they, all they want is something from Jesus. They're always wanting to get something. And they want him to heal them. He wants them to cast out a demon. They always want these needy, like these kids that just won't stop asking questions, won't stop getting something from you. They don't want to obey. They're not interested. In fact, they're chronically unfaithful. They are not interested. They want to use him. And yet he says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So again, we see in Nehemiah, we see a heart for God's people that is first found in his priorities, what he's asking about, what he's aching for. But second, we see, uh, we see Nehemiah's heart in his prayer, his prayers. Nehemiah is regularly praying for God's people. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. Now in this prayer, you see this in verses 5 through 11 for the rest of the chapter. I'm going to read this prayer. I want you to notice two things. God's faithfulness. It, it, it's found sort of at the, the beginning of the prayer and the end of the prayer. It's got bookends to the prayer. And then God's faithfulness is the first thing, and second is the people's failure. God's faithfulness and his people's failure. Then, I, then we read this in verse 5. Says, then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love. You see the faithfulness? Who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Then you're, now we talk about we go from God's faithfulness to the people's failure. I confess the sins that we Israelites. He doesn't say those Israelites, you know, those people over there, those Christians who don't get it. He involves himself. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family. He sees it as a generational thing. Have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. This idea of wickedness. He says, he says uh, uh, we have acted very wickedly. Here, wickedness in the Old Testament. Regularly, uh, wickedness is this very simple idea. It's a pretense of commitment. Wickedness is this sort of saying that you're on board but not actually being on board. It's, it's, it's raising your hand to volunteer, but when the time comes, ah, too busy. Got to wash my dog. Right? It's the sense of pretending to be on board. And he said, we have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. And then he appeals to the word. So this, this prayer is, again, it's, a, it's, it's about God's faithfulness. It's about a human failure but it's also informed by God's word. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, this is verse 8, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you, ret if, listen to this, if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. It's straight out of the book of Deuteronomy. 
See, see, this is so beautiful. What animates Nehemiah to prayer are the amazing promises found in Scripture. A, a God of faithfulness. Like a God who says, look, even if it gets so bad that I have to exile you to the farthest horizon, to the, 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 as, as far as it could possibly, to the ends of the earth, even if that happens, it's not going to be too late. If you simply return to me and obey my commands, I will bring you back. Now think about what is it like to worship a God who will never leave you or forsake you? Listen to me. We live in an age, the golden age of bailing. People will bail on you. They will, you know, those of you who are familiar with social media or texting, you know, you're familiar with the phrase ghosting. People just ghost. They're gone. Stop texting. Stop, you know, just, just, you don't hear from them. They're just, they don't exist anymore. Or you don't exist to them anymore. We live in this age of ghosting. The sense of at the end of the day, there's really, I'm by myself. That's it. I can't rely upon anyone. Recently, David Brooks, um, I think it was in the Atlantic, had a, had a very lengthy essay on what's ailing America. And he got to basically says, look, in America, you can't trust anyone anymore. That's the central thesis. You just can't trust. There's such an erosion of trust. We don't trust our leaders we don't trust our politicians. We don't trust the companies. We don't trust family. We don't trust friends. We don't trust our coworkers. Whom can I actually trust? And, and here Nehemiah is saying there is only one who has that dogged devotion, one who will never leave us or forsake us. And he appeals to God's promises and stands upon those promises. Verse 10, they are your servants. And your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Isn't that beautiful? Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. So the plot thickens. Well, who's this man? What's going on? And we read in the final words of chapter 1, I was cupbearer to the king. Now again, notice the two great motivations for his prayer. It's one, the failures of his people, and second, the faithfulness of our God. If you ever try to start helping someone, if you actually want to make a difference in life, you want to be a social worker, a lawyer, you want to be a doctor, whatever, if you actually want to help people in some way, what will happen is this. You'll be all excited, you'll be animated, so eager to do it, to really get out there and help somebody, and then you get out and do, you get, start doing what you're going to do, and you, you realize something very quickly. The people don't want help. I mean, most, for the most part, people, I don't want you to, don't, don't help me, I've got this, I'm good. I've talked to several times to persons in the medical profession, and they'll express just such discouragement, how people will come in, the patient will come in, they're there, and they, 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 they um, you know, give them some sort of treatment, prescribe some sort of drugs, where it may be, give them a, a, a plan of some sort to follow, regimen, and they leave, and they don't do it. Physical therapist comes, hey, these are the things, these are the stretching that you need to do, these are the exercises that you need to do so that you can actually walk again. Wouldn't that be nice to walk again, to walk without a limp, to have full range of motions? You're, oh, what do you think? It would be just this most straightforward thing. No, people don't do it. They don't do it. See, when you actually begin to help, pe help people, you realize that people 
really are broken, deeply broken. And Ezra and Nehemiah presents this very realistic picture of that. Just last night I was able to, I had the joy of, um, of uh, officiating at a wedding. And uh, it's a wonderful young couple that I've been uh, walking with and uh, doing uh, premarital counseling with. And so we were at the, the, the wedding last night. And just even the short homily, I just warned them. I said, be ready that both of you have inside of you this, this capacity of complete self-sabotage. This ability to undermine your own lives, to shoot yourself in the foot repeatedly again and again and again. It's there. We have this, this incredible sense of that we are, are this incredible, excuse me, this incredible capacity to self-destruction. And so the motivation to pray comes from that realistic perspective that I cannot change on my own. That the one who needs to actually bring about the purposes of God is God himself. That if God is going to change us, it's got to be him and his timing because I can't do it on my own. Now, one of, uh, one of the wonderful things about having little kids is I get to read children's books. And there's this one children's book that's one of my favorites. I think I may have mentioned it. I may have mentioned it before. But this is called Frog and Toad Together. How many of you know Frog and Toad? You guys know Frog and Toad? This is classic, classic stories. In fact, I think some of the greatest authors are precisely those who can write for children because they, um, they're able to communicate such profound things so simply. And one of, the, one of the stories in here is called The Garden. And listen to this. This is, Frog was in his garden. Can you see this? Frog was in his garden. Toad came walking by. What a fine garden you have, Frog, he said. Yes, said Frog. It is very nice. But it was hard work. I wish I had a garden, said Toad. Here are some flower seeds. Plant them in the ground, said Frog, and soon you will have a garden. How soon, said Toad. <laughs> Quite soon, said Frog. Toad ran home. He planted the flower seeds. Now seeds, said Toad. Start growing. Toad walked up and down a few times. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head close to the ground and said loudly, Now seeds start growing. Toad looked at the ground again. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head very close to the ground and shouted, Now seeds start growing. Frog came run, running up the path. What is all the noise, he asked. My seeds will not grow, said Toad. You are shouting too much, said Frog. These poor seeds are afraid to grow. My, my seeds are afraid to grow, asked Toad. Of course, said Frog. Leave them alone for a few days. Let the, line, let the sun shine on them. Let the rain fall on them. Soon your seeds will start to grow. That night, Toad looked out of the window. Drop, said Toad. My seeds have not started to grow. They must be afraid of the dark. Toad went out of his garden with some candles. I will, I will read the seeds a story, said Toad. Then they will not be afraid. Toad read a long story to his seeds. All the next day, Toad sang songs to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad read poems to his seeds. 
And I'm not going to finish the story because I'm going to leave it a cliffhanger and find out what happens. <laughs> but see, so often, I as a minister, I can look around and think, why, why aren't things growing? And I yell and I, I do all the, I work all, do all these things that, that Toad, or, or Toad uh, tries to do, and they're things that really aren't helping. And the most urgent thing of all, the one thing that really will work, goes neglected. And it's prayer. It is prayer. As God's leaders, when I first came to Good Shepherd, I, I gathered the session together and said, I don't know what skills you have, what abilities you do or don't have, how well trained you are. I don't know what time you have. But there's one thing I need from you. There's only one thing that I need right now. Is that we're going to gather and we're going to pray together weekly. And it's been so meaningful. Saturday mornings, we, we, we meet to pray together, and it's just a beautiful thing. I can see God answering prayers. We have a Thursday morning prayer team. That is the most pivotal time of the week. That is the most important thing that we do. And, of course, I individually am regularly praying for the church, praying for all of you. Earlier we sang this song, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can, what, came and can, can change the leopard spots and melt this heart of stone. Do you believe that? You cannot change on your own. We cannot change on our own. America will not change on its own. It will not be the most amazing president's policies that change our world. It will be prayer, will be God's hand at work. Do you believe Jesus' words when he says this? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So often we're just doing all these things. We're just like frog or toad. Just in the way that we are screaming, yelling, doing all these things, running around, rushing, and nothing's happening. Christian, do you have a heart for God's people? Are you willing to pray for them? You know, if ever there were a person who didn't need to pray, it would be Jesus, don't you think? I remember as a kid thinking, why? Well, I would like, be reading the gospel with my parents and Jesus would be praying. I'm like, why is he praying for it? What a waste of time. I mean, he can do whatever he wants to. He's Jesus, right? And yet Jesus' life, you read through Luke's gospel especially, and Luke highlights how Jesus again and again and again is dependent upon his Father, communing with his Father in prayer. So again, this, this message, what does it mean to be, have a heart for God's people? It's a recognition of just how weak we are and how mighty he is. Our weaknesses, our, our failures, but also his faithfulness. It grabs hold of those promises and says, I will believe in the face of everything to the contrary. As Nehemiah prays for God's people and says, in the face of generational disobedience, I am going to lay hold of the promises of God and I will pray to him. So again, how do we see Nehemiah's heart for God's people? First, it's his priorities. He's asking, he's aching. Second, it's in Nehemiah, the way that Nehemiah has made a man of prayer. He prays for God's people. And third, we see in Nehemiah's heart for God's people in his planning. The way that he has, he has an intentionality, there's a purpose. Nehemiah has plans to help God's people. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. 
This is beautiful. Again, the, the prayer at the end of chapter 1 concludes by saying, God, give me, give me a, a certain, um, how does he say here? I mean, look, it says in verse 11, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayers of your servants who delight in revering your name. And he says, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Of course, who is this man? It's the king. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. And we read in chapter 2, verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the, of the king Artaxerxes, this is Artaxerxes I, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. See, here's, even a, here's a pagan king recognizing where Nehemiah's heart is. Isn't it amazing? Even in his workplace, in his, his place of context, there's a sense in which his supervisor, others are noticing what is breaking his heart. I was very much afraid, end of verse 2, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? <laughs> the king, like a mom, like a parent, the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Isn't that beautiful? He inserts this, this aside. Even now, in the midst of discussion, he prays. Verse 5, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, Now look, listen to this planning. This is not just some sort of random, sort of, hey, I you know, happen to be you know, in front of the king, I'm sad, and just... Uh, you can tell there's been some serious forethought. There's intentionality. There's this there's sense in which he has stopped and thought about what would it actually look like. His heart breaks... His heart breaks for Jerusalem, it breaks for God's people. He prays, and then he sets about truly thinking, how am I going to allocate my resources, my time, my future? How am I specifically going to act? And how am I going to use the connections that I have to forward the purposes and plans of God? Verse 7, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, might I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the world park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went, on the governor, I went, so I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also had also sent... An army, officer, an army officers and a cavalry with me. Do you see Nehemiah's heart for God's people? It's seen in his intentionality and the way that he thinks about how can I take the resources at my disposal and, and put them to, to work in helping to fulfill the promises and plans that God has for his people. Let me just ask you, are you laying your resources at the feet of Jesus Christ? This is not my car, it's his car. Not my bank account, it's his bank account. It's not my house, this is his house. It's not my time, it's his time. I tell you again, when you do that, one of the most amazing things that I look at my parents' life, I mentioned them earlier, I mentioned them again, I look at my parents' life, and I'm amazed 
over time how many people they have helped. The fruitfulness of their lives. They're just they're ordinary people. They don't have all these connections. They're just doing their thing with what they got. And that's exactly what Jesus wants from us. That's all he wants. Many of you know the, the story of the widow's mite. Right, was Jesus and his disciples are gathered all around him, and here's this widow, and they're all pointing, hey, Jesus, look at all these amazing people, contributing all these big, look at all these people who are a big deal. He's, and he's throwing, they're throwing on all this money, and Jesus points out this widow. They don't even see, because they can't see. They can't see, they can't see, you can't see someone who really has no status, and they point out this old widow, and all she does, she puts in this little bit that she's got, all that she has. She gives it all. And Jesus says, do you see, she's given more than everyone else. Isn't that beautiful? So listen, you may be a little kid. You may have, you may have no resources, no money. You may have no, um, no education. You may have no, and much of anything. You may not be pretty. You may not be athletic. But you serve someone who simply will love you as you just give what you got. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? Give the little you have and Jesus will say, you have given more than everyone else. So beautiful, so encouraging. You know, I just, so many of you, I would love for you to not be hesitant to look around this church, to look around the people, the family of God here, Good Shepherd, and just of your own initiative, take it up. I'm doing my thing one, a uh, couple weeks ago, I was talking to Nancy, and we're in the office, and I come in and out, I come out of the office, and suddenly, suddenly Kirk Sutherland is over here down the hall, and he's just painting. Well, the leadership didn't talk about that. We didn't, we didn't mention anything like that. He just came in and of his own volition. You know what? This, this hallway seriously needs some paint. And he just starts painting. It was so encouraging to me. It was like he just, of his own will, thought, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get this done. There's a thousand things like that. As you look, as you ask, as you inquire, as you look around, what is it the Lord is laying on your heart to do? See, Jesus himself knew God's plans and purposes. He knew that he wanted to give his full life. He, his food was to do the will of the one who sent him. He knew that God was at work in the midst of the chaos and confusion. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, Peter we, we, we remember Peter cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest. What a sight, right? What a situation. And finally, Peter gets so angry, he draws his sword, and in an act of just complete military incompetence, I mean, what do you think? I'm, I'm going to go for this guy's ear. You know I mean, <laughs> he had no idea. He just sort of, you know, language just whatever frails about with his sword. Cuts off some guy's ear. As if, what's that going to accomplish? That's me just flailing about. And here we see Jesus respond with such beautiful, a beautiful question. Do you not think that I cannot call upon my father and he will send 12 legions of angels I got this. Everything is, and he says, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? There's a plan. I'm aligned with that plan. I'm putting all my resources into that plan. And maybe you can't see the plan right now. Maybe it looks as bad as it possibly can be. It looks horrible. The whole thing looks futile. It just seems pointless. I resonate with Peter. I just, this is just so anticlimactic, Jesus. There's nothing happening. And Jesus insists everything is going according to plan. And are you on board? Peter, are you on board with that? 
So where is the heart for God's people first? It's found, uh, where do you see Nehemiah's heart for God's people? First, it's found his priorities. Second, is prayer. Third, is planning and purpose. And finally, I'll, I don't want to go into this for the sake of time here, his perseverance. We see in the second half of chapter 2 that Nehemiah perseveres. He perseveres for God's people. We see it right there in verse 10. It says, When Senbalet the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about all that Nehemiah was doing, it says, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And immediately we see how there's opposition. We're going to hear more about these characters later in later Nehemiah and the external opposition. But there's also not only external foes, but there's also just facil- massive facility issues. Their followers who their followers they, they need to be led they need to be uh, they need to be brought together they need to be gathered and motivated and inspired. Nehemiah perseveres for God's people. Let me conclude with this. Um, so often I'm sure this happens to you. Every once in a while you're out and about you're meeting new people. Uh, maybe you're traveling and someone asks you, "Oh, well, what do you do?" And so when I'm asked that question, I usually say my usual answer is is you know simply I say, "Well, I'm a minister and a professor." That's what I usually say to people. I'm a minister and a professor. But at, there are times, I've been known to do this, when I'm just feeling a little more risky and a bit silly, that, and this is not original to me, but in response, when someone says to me, what is it that you do, I respond this way. Are you ready? Well, I work for an international nonprofit humanitarian relief organization. And it has locations in almost every country and, and serves in almost every language in the world. In fact, we offer everything from mentorship to personal life renewal to marriage and family counseling on a whole range of issues like addiction, depression, or abuse. To, to, we, we do disaster relief. We start and maintain orphanages and hospitals, halfway houses. We serve infants, even the unborn, adolescents, adults, and the elderly, the homeless, the incarcerated, street children, and prostitutes. We're the single greatest tribute. We have the single greatest contributor to the visual and performing arts in all of Western civilization. Our founding documents have impacted world literature and the humanities from poetry to politics more than anything ever written. We've been around for just over 2,000 years. We're the church of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, don't let your immediate senses fool you. We're a small, humble church. It's beautiful. It's awesome. Just like the early churches that Paul ministered to. It's in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, those little churches were the epicenter of two millennia of global transformation. Do you believe in God's purposes? Do you have a heart for God's people? Because our God is a God who loves to make promises to a most unpromising people. Amen? That is the nature of the people of God. So I just want to encourage you. Do you have a heart for God's people? Are, you, are his priorities your priorities? Are you asking, are we asking about one another? Today, maybe can you, will you leave, before you go to bed tonight, will you text someone? Will you ask them, how are you doing? What's going on? Ask them about their children, ask them about their job. Ask. Ache for the, the struggles that we have. Ache for the challenges that we're facing. And then pray. Go to the Lord in prayer. You can even take that very prayer that Nehemiah has and use that as a template for yourself. Fill in, the, fill in the blanks. Make that prayer. Make it and persevere in it. Persevere in that. 
and, and, and begin to wonder what plans do I have? How, how can I be intentional? What are my, the resources that I have as a, as a doctor, as a lawyer, as a, as a, as a teacher, as a, whatever you are? What, what, how is the Lord calling me to use my resources for the people of God, to fulfill the purposes of God? And then are we expecting opposition? Are we expecting foes from outside? Are we expecting facility issues? Are we expecting the challenge that, we're, that, that followers need to, be, need to be gathered together and led and cared for and grown? Are we thinking about those sort of things? Do we believe that we are part of this international, nonprofit humanitarian relief organization, the, the likes of which the world has never seen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you such praise. We love that you are a God who loves to use little people to do big things. How encouraging that is. Father, thank you that it's not about how much money we have. It's not about how many people we know. It's not about, uh, Father, how good we look, how, how capable we are at some athletic sport or some a, a job or another. Lord, thank you so much that you are a God who looks at the heart and that you simply want all of our heart. Like the widow, Father, please, I pray even now that we would surrender our lives, all that we have, we would just lay it before you. It's yours anyway. We pray that we would acknowledge that and give it to you. Father, would you unite us, make us a people of prayer. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who died for our sins, that we might have that access. Thank you, Jesus, that you go before us. That when all looks so bleak as it did in the Garden of Gethsemane, as it looks so bleak, you knew that everything was going according to plan. Father, we love you. We ask that you would indeed, you indeed be at work. Hear this prayer because we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.